welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Andy Graywall, Professor of Law at the University of Iowa College of Law. We will discuss his article, The President's Tax Returns. So welcome back, Andy. It's, a, it's great to have you as a uh, repeat guest on, on the show. Yeah, it's great to be here again. Thank you for having yeah. me. Yeah, so this is a really fascinating and extremely timely paper, which um, I understand has gotten um, a fair amount of internet attention already. So I'm really uh, looking forward to to talking about you, talking about it with you. Um, but I thought maybe we could start by just kind of situating the paper in kind of the broader context of kind of tax policy, presidential tax returns, and and the politics of the situation. So I guess for better or for worse, um, since President Nixon, there's been a tradition of presidents releasing their tax returns to the public. But uh, uh, like so many other things, uh, President Trump has, uh, has, has bucked that tradition. Uh, and so the question really is, is whether Congress can force President Trump to to disclose his his tax returns. What would be the basis for for Congress to, to do that in the first place? Well, I guess starting at the beginning, I guess if I may explain a little bit how I got interested in this topic, um, I think that may help understand my thesis. Probably six or seven years ago, I became interested in this idea of whether and why Congress should ever look at any individual's tax returns. There's a provision in the tax code which says that the IRS can't pay big refunds um, unless the Joint Committee on Taxation, a congressional committee, looks at the refund first and some related tax return information. And I thought that was a little bit strange. Uh, it's the IRS's, jobs, the IRS's job to determine refunds, not Congress's. So I wrote this paper um, that was published, I think, in 2014, kind of going through the separation of powers concerns related to Congress looking at specific taxpayers' tax returns. And in that paper, um, I articulated a standard that is that Congress should be able to review tax returns only when it has a legitimate legislative purpose. And I would apply that same standard, um, broadly speaking, in the present context, that is, rather than Congress has an automatic statutory authority or other authority to review a president's tax returns. My paper, uh, one of the principal arguments is that it needs a legitimate purpose to do so. So to the extent that at least Democratic members of the House are kind of threatening to force President Trump to disclose his tax returns, what do they think the basis for, for their claim is? Why do they think they have the authority to make him do that? Well, there's a couple angles to this. One, there is a provision in the tax code that says, just generally speaking, that on request of the chairman or chairwoman of a particular congressional committee, the IRS shall furnish tax returns to Congress. So there's a statute that seemingly says there's no qualifications here, just Congress is automatically entitled to whatever information it wants. That, that being said, when the Ways and Means Committee, which is the relevant committee here, has requested Trump's return information, it did so in a somewhat unusual way. In terms of the political context, for the last couple of years, we've been hearing things like the tax returns are needed to review conflicts of interest, Russian connections, and so on. 
but the actual request now is about overseeing the IRS, not about formally investigating the president. So according to the um, committee, they want to see President Trump's tax returns such th so that they can understand how the IRS goes about auditing presidents. Hmm. So do you think that's a strategic move on Congress's part to frame this as an investigation of IRS procedures as opposed to the president directly? Um, do you think that there's some reason that they that Congress, the, these members of Congress, think that framing their request in that way will make it more authoritative or more likely to be honored? Absolutely. Outside of the impeachment context, Congress generally doesn't have a freestanding power to investigate. So the principles from a case decided by the Supreme Court 100 years ago, which dealt with the attorney general, um, in that case, the Supreme Court said, you know what, Congress, you have wide authority to investigate the Department of Justice, but you don't have the authority to investigate the attorney general specifically. And in that case, the Supreme Court upheld a congressional request for information, emphasizing again that the inquiry was targeted towards the Department of Justice and not toward its head, the attorney general. So I think in this context, we're dealing with the Ways and Means Committee. They are interested in establishing that what they're doing here is overseeing the IRS as opposed to um, redoing an audit of the president's tax returns, because that is ultimately the executive branch's job. Right. So if there's statutory authority for Congress to request information in order to oversee the IRS, and that's what Congress says it's doing, what's the problem? I mean, why doesn't the IRS then have to comply? Is, is, there, some, is there some other missing piece there that, that we haven't talked about yet? Well, the question would be, um, I suppose, does the statute's plain language control? That is, the statute does say, does seemingly establish statutory authority for uh, a request for any reason at all. So if you read the statute literally, you, know, you could have um, you know, Steve King as the chairman of a congressional committee, and he could re request the returns of all civil rights leaders. And if the statute controls, the IRS and the Treasury would be would be powerless if Steve King wants the civil rights leaders' tax returns solely to harass them on account of their race. The IRS must go along. So my paper argues that that statutory authority is um, it, it, it does it can't expand the powers that Congress otherwise has. That is, uh, if Congress passes a statute demanding information from the executive branch, that can't create powers beyond what uh, the Constitution otherwise authorizes. So in this context, the question would be, well, uh, does the IRS have the authority to investigate a single president in connection with an apparent attempt to investigate the IRS's operations. Based on the face of the request, it seems a little bit odd. They've requested IRS internal materials, memos between IRS officials, for example, dating between 2013 and 2018. And a lot of those memos and internal materials will have absolutely nothing to do with how the IRS audits a president, because in 2013, 14, 15, 16, uh, Donald Trump was not the president of the United States. So it seems like based on the request, which goes beyond just the tax returns, but includes various IRS materials, 
from the last five years, it seems to me that what they're trying to do here is investigate a particular person as opposed to oversee the IRS. And that is a factual issue that a court would have to resolve if it got to that point. Right. So so if I'm understanding correctly, then the concern is that the request, while framed in a way that seems to satisfy the terms of the statute, appears to at least potentially have a pretextual element to it. Yeah. Again, for the last two years, um, we heard about getting the returns for the sake of disclosure or exposure or to expose conflicts of interest. And now suddenly the apparent reason is to investigate the IRS to perform an academic investigation of the tax administration process. And that doesn't seem consistent with what we've heard for a while and hence the pretext concerns. Yeah. Okay. So maybe to just change directions for a moment. One of the things that I found really kind of fascinating about this paper, even though it wasn't really necessarily the focus of the paper itself, I thought it really informed my understanding of your perspective, was a sort of long history of sort of how Congress and the IRS respectively have conceptualized sort of privacy in relation to people's financial information and and their tax returns and, and so on. So I was wondering if you could just briefly kind of lay out how that developed over time, because I was quite surprised to learn just how public they were at one point in time, and then how there was this sort of gradual shift to uh, what we kind of, I think, take for granted today as a pretty rigorous uh, degree of, of privacy and a presumption of non-disclosure. Yeah, it is fascinating. And I learned a lot in digging through the history of tax privacy. Uh, sometimes as a as a soundbite, folks will say, oh, you know, at one point, tax returns were all public. Uh What's the big deal about forcing their disclosure? But when I trace through the history, starting with the first income tax, uh, starting around the Civil War era, it was the case that originally the IRS assessors or the um, relevant officers would publicly post or put in newspapers uh, different persons' tax liabilities. And newspapers had a field day with this. Uh, in my paper, I referred to various New York Times stories, and they had somewhat salacious or at least uh, amusing headlines. They would examine the returns of various rich persons in the district, and they would ask, you know, how can someone have $10,000 to pay rent but pay nothing in taxes? Or another headline might be something like the queer revelations of uptown life. Uh, and there were new stories about how persons in Brooklyn seemed otherwise despicable, but actually the tax returns showed that they uh, they actually had some mercantile shrewdness. <laughs> So um, it was interesting to read that, especially through a modern lens. But that that practice was actually controversial pretty quickly. Uh, and it's it's an interesting question as to why, because at that time, not that many people paid taxes. Uh, in any event, though, pretty quickly, within six or seven or eight years, uh, because of these concerns about taxpayer privacy, we moved towards a system under which tax returns could be inspected, that is, somebody could walk over to the IRS office and look at a return. And after that regime carried concerns, again, about privacy, we ultimately moved to this uh, modern-day standard under which tax returns must be held 
confidential. So we started with wide disclosure in the 1860s. And when the income tax disappeared and was going to come back again, people were concerned about privacy, exposure to people's business affairs. And ultimately, uh, by the early 1900s, it was a misdemeanor to unlawfully disclose tax return information. And now, as you pointed out, this is what we take for granted today. We expect our tax returns to remain private when we send them to the IRS. Right. Right. Well, and, and another thing that was really interesting too, and, and I didn't realize before I read your paper, but that there's like almost like an entirely unique regime of tax examination for for the president. It, 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 can you can you talk a little bit about how that works? Yeah. So there was no formal procedures within the IRS with respect to auditing a president, uh, but then everyone's favorite, Richard Nixon. Um, his practice has sort of changed that. I guess I just, as an aside, in digging through the materials for this paper and thinking about ethics laws, it really is amazing how many parts of our legal system were affected by Richard Nixon, not just tax, but ethics and otherwise. In any event, uh, Richard Nixon had allegedly underpaid his tax liabilities. There was rumors that he paid very little in taxes, uh, that he engaged in improper um, charitable deduction planning. And he was not um, audited under the formal procedures that we see today. Rather, uh, an IRS employee leaked the fact of his tax liability, which seemed low, and the public became concerned. There was a congressional investigation. The IRS redid an audit. And ultimately, in the mid-1970s, the IRS established detailed rules about the audit of a president. And this, um, these rules, uh, putting the substance aside, would actually be pretty helpful to a president in this sense. Imagine if there weren't automatic audit rules for a president, and then it leaked that that president was being audited. But well, we see what that can do to a public official's reputation when so-and-so is under investigation or, so un or under audit. By putting the president and vice president under mandatory audit, we don't have to worry about whether the audit was initiated because an IRS official um, found something wrong, or we don't have to worry about whether the president told the IRS official not to audit him or her. So under the uh, IRS's internal rules currently, there are extensive procedures, career staff review uh, the president's returns, all the determinations are double-checked by a separate IRS official. All the persons involved are directed not to take or accept any influence from the Treasury or White House and so on, such that we have fairly comprehensive rules today for presidential audits that did not exist at the time of Richard Nixon. Right. So I, mean, I can't help but wonder, like, in the face of all those procedures and firewalls, does that in any way undermine the congressional or the House Democrats' request to to see the president's tax returns to, to get disclosure? I mean, it seems like, you know, isn't the IRS doing all of this already? Yeah. And I think um, surely Congress has an interest in making sure that these types of rules are being followed. And in my paper, I think it I point out that it would be perfectly appropriate for Congress to request information from the IRS asking, well, 
Can you document that these procedures are being followed? Can we speak to the head person in charge of such audits? To, can we learn about this process to make sure that these mandatory audit rules are being implemented? And I think that is an appropriate first step rather than assume that something has broken down and demand the returns of the president or any individual taxpayer, instead of just assuming that the IRS isn't doing its job, as a first step, it would be appropriate for Congress to ask about those rules themselves. Aside from that, Congress has created an agency just for this purpose. There's a, many agencies have uh, inspector generals as the as does the Department of the Treasury. And historically, congressmen and congresswomen, when they want to know about IRS audit procedures, they ask the inspector general to issue a report, do an investigation, and reveal the findings. That would be another perfectly appropriate way for Congress to act in this circumstance. Ask the inspector general to investigate how the IRS performs audits. And if a red flag arises, then Congress can inquire further. So in the paper, you get into pretty granular detail about how the IRS and the various kind of sub-organizations in the IRS actually pursue these presidential audits. Maybe you could talk a little bit about them and, you know, whether are, are there reasons kind of built into the auditing system specific to the president that ought to make us more or less trustworthy of the reliability of the procedures uh, that have been put in place? Well, I mean, ultimately it comes down to uh, the faith in the IRS. The procedures contemplate that all the returns will go to a specified service center as opposed to what might otherwise be the default. And if you live in X place, your tax return might go to Cincinnati or Ogden or elsewhere. Um, and those returns are reviewed and by some IRS officials, and then they go to someone else in Baltimore for another review to make sure that the law has been followed. Uh, the short of it is that the laws are, the procedures are highly detailed. And if someone trusts the people involved, uh, as I do, I think that should go a long way towards um, addressing concerns. Um, it's to me, just speaking as a citizen, I have no special insights. I don't haven't seen President Trump's returns or I don't know anyone involved in the audit. To me, it seems like with so many um, safeguards, it would be strange for there to be corruption in the audit process and our not hearing anything about it. The procedures, the statute actually contemplates that even though tax returns must usually be held uh, in confidence, if an IRS employee or officer sees something going wrong, they can disclose to Congress, they can whistleblow without facing liability. Um, it's in fact illegal, at least under the statute, for the president to direct anyone in the IRS to close or open an audit. So there are both these internal IRS procedures, detailed procedures on the handling of an audit, and we have safeguards with respect to whistleblowers that um, if you accept them, if you trust the people in the IRS, that should go a very long way, in my view, towards um, believing that there hasn't been corruption in the way the IRS has handled an audit. So I, I got to say that, you know, despite your paper, it looks to me like some members of Congress are likely to to push forward with this investigation, even if it might be a little bit um, – uh, unorthodox, given the sort of nature of the requests that 
they're making. So, so, so I'm wondering, like, you know, to the extent we have any legal precedent addressing Congress's ability to press this sort of request, I mean, what kind of justification do you think Congress would need to provide in order to compel or potentially compel the IRS to disclose the president's tax returns? And and like, what have they currently given? Like, if something's missing, like maybe what's missing, what else might they have to kind of claim or, or show in order to make their claim stronger? Yeah, I suppose the kind of the the Twitter lane summary of Congress's investigative authority would be Congress gets essentially whatever it wants from private persons. Um, when it comes to the executive branch, Congress gets whatever the ex- executive branch is willing to give it. So that would be, I suppose, the the condensed version of the precedent in this area. That is, the case law uh, accepts extremely broad um, congressional investigatory powers. And so we, we've already seen that in connection with um, cases related to this issue. That is, Congress has uh, issued subpoenas to some financial entities related to the president and has already won a couple of court cases. It's not definitively resolved, but the courts there basically say uh, Congress has extremely broad authority and they ex- readily accept proper justifications. The history with the executive branch is totally different. Uh, there, since the time of Washington, the president and executive branch has resisted um, demands for information, whether we're talking about Eric Holder under the Obama administration or Myers and Bolton under the Bush administration and on and on. Um, the executive branch gives Congress information it feels comfortable giving. So in this context, in that sense, there's no specific precedent because historically, or at least no judicial precedent, because these sorts of things get um, get resolved through the political or negotiation process. So it just hasn't happened before. We have not seen Congress sue the president or anyone in the executive branch to get any particular person's tax return information. So we are a bit on, on, we're in uncharted territories, but if they wanted to make the strongest case, again, the first thing to do would be to establish some sort of red flag and asking the inspector general to uh, investigate would be a proper first step. Um, Alternatively, they may try to look to other congressional committees uh, the Ways and, Committee, Ways and Means Committee is concerned with the tax system, but if they believe there are Russian connections, for example, on a tax return, that may be appropriate for another congressional committee to investigate and inquire about, even if it's not really the uh, province of the Ways and Means Committee. So I think in terms of um, strengthening the request, thinking about different justifications, or giving the IRS a chance to explain how it audits presidents would be the an appropriate next step. Okay. Okay. So it sounds like like maybe laying some groundwork might potentially strengthen Congress's claim or their ability to kind of prosecute a claim to to force the IRS to turn over some of this material. I, I mean I, I guess it sounds like it's it, it may be pretty speculative given that you say that there's not a whole lot of kind of compelling precedent in the area. But, you know, I mean, if you were to speculate, like, imagine Congress continues to press this claim 
and tries to litigate, tries to get a subpoena, tries to compel the production of the president's tax returns. I mean, how might that play out, do you think? I mean, how do you think courts would respond to that? How might the executive branch respond to that? Does Congress have a viable way of actually pushing these kinds of claims forward? I'm skeptical that they will have a viable way through the judicial arena. And for the first around 200 years of our history, this idea of a lawsuit between the executive branch and Congress was unknown. It's really only been in the last few decades that some courts have allowed lawsuits by Congress to proceed against the executive branch. So putting aside the tax return issue, if I had to guess, and I'm sure there'll be twists in the litigation, but if I had to guess, I would think the Supreme Court, if this case or a similar case reached it, would say that Congress does not have the power to sue the president in court. Um, That is, there is no standing for a congressional committee or a chamber of Congress to sue the executive branch and demand information. Uh, to enforce a subpoena. So that's how I think the case would um, end up decided on standing grounds. If I'm wrong about that, it may very well be. I mean, who knows? Um, every time I read something about standing, I end up more confused than when I started. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, as, 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 as long as you're trying to represent a group of trees, you'll probably Yeah, start, yeah. Right? As long, you have to be able to see those trees, but yes, as long as you can see those trees. Uh, yes, yeah, so, but if, if it got past standing, you know, I, based on what we've seen the last couple of years, clearly there are many judges, especially on the lower courts, who are hospitable to claims against the Trump administration. I would not be surprised if uh, a district court or even an appellate court um, – if it found standing, ordered the IRS to disclose the returns at the Supreme Court, I think it'll be a lot hairier issue. Mm-hmm. Right. So, 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 Andy, kind of in closing, I wanted to take a step back from this particular dispute and kind of ask you about not just this paper, but some of your your prior work as well, and sort of like the relationship between privacy, taxpayers, the IRS, and sort of these demands for the presidential tax returns. I mean, it's become kind of a tradition over the years for presidents and presidential candidates to disclose their tax returns. And people almost seem to come to expect it, even though they don't necessarily even look at them or learn anything very interesting from them. In, in many cases. I mean, I wonder if you have any thoughts on on that as a tradition and whether that's a, a good or a bad thing in relation to sort of the way we think about the functioning of the IRS and, and, and individuals' relationship to disclosure of that kind of financial information. Yeah, that's an interesting question. This not just tax returns, but the entire concept of financial disclosure is relatively new to our constitutional and election system. Uh, Again, Richard Nixon prompted that Ethics in Government Act, and uh, we now have detailed financial disclosures that are required of presidential candidates. They They don't include tax returns. Whether the rules should include tax returns, I think, is a question for individual voters to decide. I do think, uh, I guess to use Nixon's um, statements, 
the people should know whether their candidate is or is not a crook. That that's a good thing. That's a valid inquiry for um, taxpayers and voters to want to make. Uh, whether it arises to forcing candidates to disclose their tax returns, I think, is a lot harder question uh, because tax returns can contain a lot of information that isn't, I don't think, relevant to, uh, I suppose, an objective voter's choice. If you had a presidential candidate who had a large medical expense deduction, and let's say that, let's assume that the tax code allowed a deduction for gender reassignment surgery, and the presidential candidate was um, paying medical expenses for his or her child to undergo gender reassignment surgery, and that information was otherwise private, um, I'm not terribly comfortable with the public or the media poking into the facts underlying a claimed medical expense deduction. To me, that seems a bit too invasive. So if it's going to be happen, if we're going to force, if candidates need to disclose their tax returns, I think we need to do it collectively through legislation and assuming it's otherwise constitutional, uh, demand disclosure or selective disclosures of tax returns. I personally, being familiar with the IRS, have enough faith in the system that I, I don't think there's massive fraud with respect to the IRS audits of um, celebrity or headline candidates. So I, I, I personally don't need to see Kim Kardashian's returns or Donald Trump's returns or anyone else's returns. I'm much more interested in the IRS being professionally staffed, adequately funded, and um, undergoing its, um, its responsibilities without political interference. Awesome. Well, Andy, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about your extremely timely paper. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see how this dispute plays out over the next months and and years. And uh, here's hoping that your your paper has an impact on the conversation around this question. I hope so too, Brian. Thanks for having me. It's presidential press conference time. Check ahead. It's question time. Mr. President, do you believe what Mr. Khrushchev has been saying lately? I do not believe what Mr. Khrushchev has been saying, basically because I do not understand Russia. <laughs> Marcel's here. Bop, bop, Mr. President, dang, da, dang, you, ding, da, ding, think the education bill will be passed, ding, dong, doom. Well, for your sake, sir, I certainly <laughs> hope so. <laughs> Kingston's here. Mr. President, what do you plan to do about the recession? Well, I have spoken to the Secretary of Labor and the Secretary of Commerce, and uh, we feel the American people will be willing to bear any burden. And we have uh, floated a new bond issue, which in relation to the stock income tax on the previous gold standard on the interchange of the planetary between NATO and, and the four powers that exist on the World Bank. The, the funds uh, recurrent from that alone, uh, we feel, might do it. If not, 
Uh, my father will lend us a couple of dollars. <laughs> Dwayne here. Mr. President, do you expect to add any new states to the Union during your administration? Yes, we are seriously considering Alaska and Hawaii. But Alaska and Hawaii are already in the Union. Is that a fact? 